Hey, get your Bible and let's do what we do. Get your Bible, open it up, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're working our way through this book. 1 Corinthians 7 is where we're going to be landing uh, here this morning. In 2007, a young man wearing a ball cap, t-shirts, and jeans, uh, carrying a violin case, went into the subway in Washington, D.C., opened up his uh, case, pulled out the violin, and began to play. As happens all the time, if you've been in New York, you've seen uh, these types of things happen. And uh, he was playing, and most of the people there did not pay him much attention. A few threw a couple of dollars and some change in the case, but most everyone else just kind of went about their business wherever they were going. However, the people there did not realize that this was actually an experiment supported by the Washington Post, that the, the violin player was actually a man named Joshua Bell, who was a world-renowned uh, violinist. People will pay a lot of money to hear him play the violin. The violin he was playing was a Stradivarius uh, made in the 1700s, worth about $3.5 million. And the piece that he was playing was one of Bach's uh, most intricate pieces, uh, most difficult pieces. So really what was before them was something really extraordinary. And that really gets down to the experiment. They, the Washington Post wanted to know how would people respond when they see beauty in an unexpected place? Would they stop? Would they marvel? Or would they just go on their way? Well, of course, most people just went on their way on this particular day. A few people noticed, but most of them did not. And it really... It shouldn't be a big surprise to us because many times uh, we are confronted with beauty and we don't really see it, right? I mean, how many people live on the beach and they live on this beautiful beach and, and yet so, on some days they get up and they don't really notice the beach. They're busy doing their thing and yet some people pay a lot of money just to get to see that very same stretch of beach. Or some people live in the mountains and some days they don't really notice the mountains because they're busy doing their thing, but other people take whole vacations just to go to the mountains and, and to see them. And sometimes the beauty, there can be beauty right in front of our eyes and we just don't see it really because we're wishing we were somewhere else and this is certainly the case in our relationships a lot of times we don't see the beauty in the position where we are in life uh, because we're wishing we were somewhere else I think about maybe the young mom and she's got two kids and she's up at 2 a.m rocking one uh, to trying to get that little baby to go to sleep and she's probably thinking oh man it'd be great to be single for just a day right just a day just to have a breather and yet another young woman that same age might think oh if I could just be a mom for a day you know, it's easy to wish you were somewhere else living someone else's life. And so this is really what uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're looking for like a main verse to, uh, to that, that sent the whole chapter centers around, it would be verse 17. Look at verse 17. It says, let each one live his life in the situation of the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. The, the reoccurring theme here is that, hey, God uh, knows where you are and God's got you there for a reason. 
These new Christians, they just give their life to Christ and they're like, oh, now that I'm a Christian, man, what, what needs to change? If I'm single, does that mean I need to hurry up and get married? Or, or do I stay single? If, I, if I'm married, uh, how does that impact my marriage? Maybe there's one person saved and the other person's not. Do I leave my husband or leave my wife or, or, or do I stay in it? I mean, they had all these questions and it's almost like the Apostle Paul is kind of putting on his dad hat here. He's like, okay, everybody take a breath. All right. God has you where you are for a reason. And you can glorify God right where you are. Now, I understand that some of you here today, you're just not really happy with your life. Not happy with where you are. You're thinking, well, I should be further along in my career by now. Or I should, have, I should be married by now. Or I should be having children by now. Or, or we should be in a different place. I really thought that I would be accomplishing this by this point in my life. And, and, and what do I need to do? What do I need to change? And it's like, hold on a minute. Stop. Take a breath. God knows exactly where you are. And God has you where you are for a reason. And you can glorify God and you can see beauty right where you are. That's the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, Paul is going to address two groups of people in this passage. And it's a long passage. So I'm going to do my best to get through with it on time. Okay? But he's going to address two basic groups of people. He's going to talk to married people. And he's going to talk to single people. So that should pretty much cover everybody in the room. All right? So everybody's got something here for you this morning. Uh, how to find beauty in my marriage. How to find beauty in singleness, in my singleness. Okay? So let's talk about uh, the married group first. That's the first group that he addresses. So uh, how do I find beauty in marriage? Well, jot this first on down. Uh, find beauty in your marriage by giving. By giving. Look at verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. This is the word of God. Amen. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, stop right there. Uh, throughout this letter, Paul will often say, now, in response to the matter of blank, and then he'll say it again and say it again. And this is just an indication that Paul has received uh, uh, information from this church that they have lots of issues to work through. So he's just clicking them off one at a time. So this one, there's been an issue about marriage. And so he's going to address it and an issue about singleness. And so now he's going to lean in and address that topic. So in response to the matter you wrote about, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex, but because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. I understand that the sex talk was last week, okay? However, we're still kind of working our way through this, so bear with me here for just a minute. In the Corinthian culture, as I said last week, it was just a sex-saturated culture. And so they had a very utilitarian view of marriage. Marriage was where you have a family, but sexual intimacy was found outside of marriage, right? That that's just was a common thought. And we talked about some last week that there was a sense that, hey, all this is to take place outside of marriage. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Uh, that's not the case. That God has provided intimacy to be found in the context of marriage. Now, there were some that thought anything goes. That, that's what he talked about last week. Anything goes. But then there were others here in verse 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, that, saw, that, that offered a different alternative. And that is nothing goes. This was what we call the ascetic view. The ascetic view was that it's not good to, to have sex at a period, at all. 
In fact, uh, I really don't like how the CSB translate this. Literally, King James actually does it pretty well. Uh, literally means you should not touch a woman. It's, this is an ascetic view that says, hey, that, that sexual intimacy is actually to be avoided at all costs. And so this was the opposite view of the anything goes people. This was the nothing goes people. And Paul's like going, hold on a minute. Both of you are, are in extremes here. That's not what God has provided. He said, uh, intimacy should be found in the context of a man and a woman in covenant faithful marriage. That's where true intimacy is to be found. And by the way, that was a radical thought back then. What? You know, I, I can't go out and do my thing out here and then just keep, keep my wife at home. No, 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 you can't do that. At home is where you find a fulfillment uh, in, in your sexual intimacy. Uh, now, by the way, it was very controversial back then. And somehow today, it is again quite controversial that your intimacy is found in the context of marriage. Some may say, well, that's so outdated. That's so old school. That's unrealistic. I've heard all those responses, but it is God's plan. It is God's best. It's God's best for you. It's God's best for me. You know, I love what Tim Keller said. He said, sex is a way to say to somebody else, I belong completely and exclusively to you. I belong completely and exclusively to you. And, 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 and really, he goes on to describe this in this passage. We're not going to read this part of it, but he goes on to describe how really intimacy is all about giving. It's not about taking. It's a husband giving to his wife and a wife giving to her husband. It's all about giving. This world is twisted into something I take, I grab, I, you owe me. In fact, people have actually used this passage to actually demand uh, sexual intimacy from their partner, which is the opposite of what this actually means. <laughs> what he's actually saying is not no, about taking, it's about giving to one another, loving one another, uh, serving one another. That's what intimacy really is in a marriage. Hebrews 13.4 puts it this way, marriage is to be honored by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled. Uh, the word honor there is an important word. I've, I've harped on this many times before. I'm sure I will harp on it again, okay? Uh, but the word uh, honor there, timos, um, literally means priceless, treasured of great value. When you honor someone, you see them as a treasure. You see them as priceless. You see them as irreplaceable. You see them as, as, as something incredibly valuable. It's like, man, you're awesome. When you honor someone, you're saying, man, you're so much value. The way God made you and just who you are. You're, just, you're so amazing. And I just love you so much. And I honor you and I lift you up. That's what it means to honor someone in a marriage. And a marriage and especially in sexual intimacy, is to be something of great honor. You begin to see that person the way God sees them. The Bible says, this is how God sees you. You are made in my image, Genesis 1.27. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139 verse 14. You are my treasured possession, Exodus 19.5. You are precious in my sight. That's how God sees your husband. That's how God sees your wife. And so you should see them the way God sees them as this precious treasure 
this, this precious one, fearfully, wonderfully made, uh, loved by God, honored by God, valued in God's eyes, and should be honored and valued in your eyes as well. I've mentioned this before, that it's a lot like uh, a seesaw. You know, a seesaw, you know, someone gets lifted up and the other person has to go down, right? That's how it works. Now, it's not very much fun if somebody always stays up, right? And then someone, I just prefer to be the one up and you be down all the time, 24-7. That's, that's not fun, right? Nobody enjoys that. So what's fun is when then I go down and you go up right? And then I go down and you go up and I go down and that, that, is, that is how fun happens when you're on a seesaw and that's how joy happens in a marriage. That I'm, I'm putting my own needs aside to lift up and honor my wife and then, and then she does the same thing. She lifts up and honors her husband and it's that reciprocal nature of honor and cherishing one another and serving and giving to one another that makes marriage beautiful. So he said here right off the bat, that marriage is to be a marriage of giving. That's how you find beauty in your marriage, in giving. But he goes on to say something else. You also can find beauty in your marriage by staying, by staying. And, and in this, he talks about two different kinds of marriage. The first one is a marriage where both people are, are believers and then a marriage where one is a believer and one is not. So let's look at the one where both of them are believers. Look down to verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, he's very straightforward here. Paul says, this is not my idea, this is the Lord's, meaning Jesus has actually had something to say directly about this. And he's quoting from Matthew 19, verse 6, where Jesus said, whom God has joined together, let no man separate. So God intends for marriage to be a permanent commitment of a man and a woman in marriage, a person, a permanent commitment, a covenant of faithful love. And why is that? Why, why does God not want divorce? Why does it say throughout scripture, God hates divorce? I think there's a lot of reasons why he hates all the pain that it causes. He hates all the generational impact that it can have. I mean, there's a lot of things. If you walk through it, you know the pain that, that it brings. But I think the main reason why God hates divorce is because marriage in itself is designed to be a portrait of God's faithful love to his people. That's what marriage is about. It is a, a visible living portrait of how Christ loves us and how we love him. And, and that, that nature of a husband loving his wife, Ephesians 5, like Christ loved the church, is such a beautiful picture of how we give ourselves, uh, husbands, to love our wives and sacrifice for them and care for them and love them the way Jesus loves us. And our, our, our wife loves her husband and follows her husband and cares for her husband and trusts her husband just as the church loves and trusts and follows Jesus. That it's supposed to be this beautiful portrait of Christ and his church. And so when you divorce, what happens? You're taking that portrait of God's faithful love and you're tearing it apart. And so what is supposed to underscore God's faithfulness actually uh, mars that in unfaithfulness. See, this is why God um, hates divorce. And so he said it's, it's not good. You're, you're, you're to remain faithful in staying with your husband, staying with your wife. Bowling Green's 
National Center for Family and Marriage Research did a study from 1990 to 2015. And they noticed that the divorce rate doubled during that time period for ages, people ages 55 to 64, doubled. And then they also noticed that if you're above 65, marriages tripled in divorce. They actually coined this the gray divorce. And you say, well, why do you call it the gray divorce? And I think it's because they said, well, these are couples that maybe they, their marriage started off good, but then uh, things got a little difficult and then they had children and they just focused everything on the kids. Everything's about the kids. Just, 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 you know, we keep it together for the kids and they just kept focusing everything on the children and they didn't do anything to keep their marriage alive and healthy and growing. And then one day when the kids go off to college or the kids get married and they have kids of their own, then they finally look at their partner and say, well, I don't really even know you. It's been decades since we've been out on a date, you know, or had any kind of relationship. And so why don't we just call it what it is and they separate such a sad thing. And it's a great reminder to us that if you are married, that you should focus on your marriage, to work on your marriage. Yeah, it's difficult. We're going to get into that in just a minute. I get it. I've been married 36 years. But I do know this, that it's worth fighting for and worth striving for and worth working on together to make that something of great beauty and that would honor the Lord. So that's, that's the family that both of them are believers. Then he addresses one who are not a believer and one that is. Look at verse 12. He said, but I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman is an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife. Some versions say sanctified there. You can look at your own version. And the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. So here he's saying, if you're married, here again, there's context, they're a new believer, now they're in this marriage, and my spouse is not a believer, what should I do? Should I leave? No. He said, stay in there and pray. Stay and pray. Stay and pray. That's basically what he's saying there. Stay faithful and pray for her. And he said, why is that? Look at verse 14. He uses this idea of the unbelieving spouse is made holy or sanctified. See that? What, what does that mean? What is he talking about there? He certainly doesn't mean that they are saved because they're married to somebody that's saved, right? You're saved by grace through faith in Christ. So what does it mean? Two words here, blessing and influence. In some sense, that that unbelieving spouse and your children are receiving a blessing from God because you're a believer, you're walking with God, you're seeking to hear from God, God's answering prayer, God's going before you, he's opening up doors, he's using you, there, there's a blessing that comes from a person living a godly life and the blessing that falls on you just kind of overflows into your family. So your wife is blessed by it too. And, and the direction that God gives and the protection God gives that kind of falls on your wife and your children too or your husband and your children too. And so there's a sense of an overflow of blessing that happens just because you are there. 
Think about Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And, and, and God was going to judge them, but, but yet there were those in there that he held off because of the presence of, of godly people there. In the same way, your presence in that marriage is, is, a, is a point of blessing to that family. Also influence... Hey, your, your godliness there should influence your husband or influence your wife to, to love God or at least to see a real Christian at work. And some of you were there. Some of you, I know that's your story, man. One person got saved, the, the husband of the wife was like, yeah, I'm not a church person. I'm, not, I'm never going to do that. And then just over the course of time, God began to work on their heart and they finally came to faith. That's why at the end of it, he says, you don't know, maybe, you, maybe God will save your husband. You don't know, maybe God will save your wife. But stay in there. But also think about the generational impact your staying will have. If you love the Lord and you love your, your husband and your wife and you're faithfully teaching each of your children the things of God. You know, you may not see it in your lifetime, but, but you have generational impact of your kids walking with God and their kids walking with God and their kids walking with God. You may miss out on that if you were to just bail out of the relationship. So he says, you know, stay in there and pray. In both cases, whether your spouse is a believer or not, he said, you know, just stay where you are. Be faithful in your marriage, trust God in your marriage, work on your marriage, see the beauty in your marriage, and seek to glorify God in your marriage. So let's just stop right here for a minute, you married people out there. How's your marriage? Is it a place where there's honor, reciprocal honor? Are there some rough spots right now? Are, 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 is God telling you even this morning, hey, you need to really lean in. Don't be wishing you were somebody else, with somebody else or somewhere else. Now's the time to lean in on your marriage and really ask God to do a renewing work, a healing work in your home. That's his word to those who are married. And then he pivots and talks about finding beauty in your singleness. All right, finding beauty in your singleness. How do we do that? Uh, write this down, finding beauty in your singleness uh, by trusting God, by trusting God. Look at verse 25, verse 25. Now about virgins, I have commanded, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful because of the present distress, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek to find a wife or do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you. Uh, the, the phrase virgin there in verse 25 typically means an unmarried young woman. Okay, so think of somebody, you know, marital age, you know, anywhere, I guess in that time, 18 to early 20s. They're not been married before, unmarried young woman. And here he's addressing them. Is it, is, is it okay to marry? Should I marry? Should I not marry? Uh, this kind of thing. And Paul starts off basically by saying that it's better for you to remain as you are. Notice in verse 26, he said, because of the present distress. What does that mean? Because of the present distress. Now, we don't know for sure, but most Bible scholars say I, that Apostle Paul, is he's been traveling through Asia Minor, right? And he's noticed that there's a growing sense of persecution. That's going to be hard. We know that the Apostle Paul is going to be killed for his faith and not too long from now. Under the hand of Nero, many of the Christians are going to be horribly persecuted. And so he sees this coming 
persecution on the horizon. And so he's like, Look, listen, you know, it's, if you're just single and you're going through that, it's going to be easier for you than if you're married and now you're worried about this other person and so on. And it just would be better for you to stay as you are. And he said, I'm just trying to spare you. But if you desire to marry and you want to marry and you get married, there's nothing wrong with that. He said, I'm just trying to spare you the heartache that this persecution will bring. But let me just make a point here that's more current application. Being single is not second class. Being single is not second class. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7, he said, I wish that all of you people were as I am, that is single, but each one has his own gift from God and one person has this gift and the other has that. In other words, what he's saying is that, hey, being single is a gift and being married is a gift. And we each have our own gift in wherever God put us. You know, some people, they don't see mar- uh, singleness as a gift. Sometimes they see marriage, I mean, uh, singleness more like a curse, right? And they're like, man, I gotta, gotta get married, gotta get married, gotta get married. And, and listen, by the way, he said it's not wrong to want to be married. That's a, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to want to be married. But if you're desperate to be married, then that's a problem. Right now, I'm just talk to you, I'm going to talk to you like 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 your pastor. All right, all right. Uh, if you're desperate, I know some people they're just like I gotta I gotta get married, gotta get married, gotta get married, uh, and I'm like, okay, whoa, hold on a minute. If you're desperate, and you'll just do anything, or you'll marry anyone. Uh, that's a problem because number one, that tells you that tells me that uh, you see yourself as kind of not a full whole person unless you get married. As, as if you're, I've, I've said this before, like you're some kind of half person out there waiting for another person to complete you. Jerry McGraw was wrong. Nobody can complete you, all right? Nobody can complete you, all right? You are complete in Christ, all right? I am complete in Christ. Let's all say that together. I am complete in Christ, all right? In fact, Colossians uh, tells us this, Colossians 2.10, you are complete in him that is in Jesus. You are fulfilled. You are full in Christ. Was Jesus incomplete? Yes or no? No. Was the apostle Paul incomplete? Yes or no? No, he was not. And neither are you. You're a whole person. You don't need somebody uh, to complete you. And also, if you're super desperate, then it just simply means that you're looking for somebody else to make you happy. And that's also a failed effort because no matter who you marry, they're not going to always make you happy. They're just not. You can't put that on somebody. Your happiness cannot be dependent on another person. And, and, and I, I, I know some people say, well, but I'm just lonely and I, and I, and I just am sexually tempted and I, I need to be married. And there, there is a place for that. But, but listen, you could be lonely in a marriage. I know a lot of people that are lonely in their marriage. You can be sexually tempted in a marriage. Is that right? Obviously, people are sexually tempted in marriage. So that just marriage doesn't just take those things away. Sometimes it only exacerbates them. You say, well, maybe, uh, you know, just being single is hard. Well, guess what? <laughs> being married is hard. I, I remember a guy uh, who was still single. And he said, uh, he said, I would be talking with people and they would say, well, have you found somebody special yet? And they would, he would say, well, no, ma'am, not yet. And she'd say, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and, and he would say, it's almost like I told her I had cancer or something. You know, I don't have cancer. I'm just single, you know. And she'd say, well, I'm going to pray for you. 
And uh, he said, uh, many times, I would just want to go to my married friends. Are you married? Are you still married? Yeah. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I'm going to pray for you, right? And that would be appropriate, right? Because marriage is hard. It's, it's difficult either way. It's a gift either way. There's a burden either way, right? And in either case, you still have you. You're still there. And so what Paul is saying here is that, hey, in, in this season of singleness, and listen, for you, maybe singleness is only for a season. Maybe it's just for a season. In the season of singleness, trust God in it. Just like you trust God if you're married, you have to trust God in your singleness. This is an opportunity for God to grow you in your faith and your trust in him, to walk closer to him and more committed to him than ever before. Uh, second thing, find beauty in your singleness by serving God, by serving God. Look at verse 32. He said, I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, how she may be holy, both in body and spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restriction on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. Get what he's saying? He's saying, listen, singleness is not like this holding pattern. And then I'm, I'm just kind of holding here in life until I finally get married, then I can get on with my life. No, no. Actually, God may have you in a season of singleness because he really has some things for you to do. And you can't do those things the way he wants you to do them if you're married. I mean, let's face it. If you're married, you, he said you're concerned about the things of the world. This is not a bad thing. Not like worldly as in bad thing. You're just concerned about a lot of stuff, right? You've got you to be worried about taking care of your husband or your wife. You've got to worry about t-ball and, and parent-teacher conferences and, and all, the, all the stuff that goes with married life. You just have all this stuff to deal with. And, and, and so your, your interests are divided. I want to serve God, but I've got all this stuff going on. I, I can only do Tuesday and Thursday and only until nine o'clock because I got to put the kids in bed at nine and that kind of thing. When you're single, man, you're just a lot more flexible. You can go on that mission trip. You can serve till late at night. You can, you can t pick up somebody at the airport at two in the morning and, and get them where they need to go. You can do all these kinds of things. There's a sense of adventure and freedom that comes when you are single. Now, remember, he's talking here to those that have, have not been married before. They're young, uh, of meritable age. And he's saying, listen, uh, listen, you can do a lot. And God's got a lot for you to do. Don't, don't fixate on your singleness. See it as a gift from God to serve the Lord. I remember uh, uh, Grace Thornton was a, uh, a single woman in her early 30s that was working for the International Mission Board and she was serving in the Middle East. And one of the, the young women she was ministering to asked her, why aren't you married? Why aren't you married? And this is what Grace told her. She said, God's got things for me to do and I couldn't, that I couldn't do if I were married. That may change one day. He may want me to do something different. But today, I know he's got things for me to do. Listen, if you are single, it's a gift from God. God's got things for you to do. Do them unto the Lord Serve God with all that you have. And as you are doing them, if he brings a fella around or a young lady around that's chasing after the Lord too, then maybe that's who God has for you. But don't waste your singleness 
wishing you were somewhere else. Really, you can tell now from this passage that Paul is really saying, hey, however the Lord found you, find beauty there, serve God there in it. Don't try to be somewhere else. Let's go back to Joshua Bell. He's in the uh, subway, right? He's playing his violin. Most people are not paying any attention to him, but there are some, like this picture. Somebody stops and sees the beauty. In the chaos, in the swirl, they stop thinking about where they're going to go and what they're going to do, and they just stop and see the beauty in front of them. That's what Paul is saying. I want you to stop wherever you are and see the beauty and the opportunity that God's put you in right where you are. How can you do that? Let me give you just some quick three little thoughts here very quickly now. Uh, One is just stop and enjoy where you are. Stop and see the beauty where you are. If you're married, find the beauty in that marriage and work on cultivating beauty and serving God and glorifying God in your marriage. If you're single, stop and see the beauty. See it as a gift. As a gift from God that I can serve God in this season. Stop and see the beauty right where you are. Uh, Secondly, look beyond yourself. If you are self-focused, you will be miserable whether you're married or single, right? If you're focused only on you, you will be married, you will be miserable no matter where you are in life. See the beauty of serving others. If you're married, serving first and foremost your husband, your wife, your children. If you're single, serving God in whatever area of ministry he has for you. And then lastly, live with eternity in mind. Notice that how Paul kind of wraps this up. Look at verse 29. Paul makes this point. He said, this is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as those uh, they have not, that have none. And those who weep as those who do not weep. And those who rejoice as those who did not rejoice. And those who buy as those that do not own anything. And those who use the world as those who do not make full use of it. For the world in its current form is passing away. What is he saying? He's saying, you know what, this, everything that we're worried about in life is so temporary. It really is. He said, you know, your, your marriage is temporary. And, 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 and the things that you own, they're temporary. And the highs and the lows of life are all temporary. All these things are fading away. The, the, the world, the life in its current form is fading away from you. Set your eyes on the things that are eternal. Whether you're married or single. You know, the first house that Liz and I ever owned is not too far from here. It's actually in North Richmond Hills. And I remember when we first bought that house, I'm buying a house, you know, it's a big deal, right? And you're signing all the documents and you're a homeowner and we were still very young. And, uh, and I can remember it was a fixer upper, man. It really was. It was a little rough, but when we put a lot of love into that and we ripped out the carpet and put a new carpet in and we painted the inside and we hung up curtains and we, uh, corralled the front yard and, and, and trimmed back that ivy that was trying to swallow the house and trimmed on the heads and really made it look good. And, and we made that little house a home. And, uh, then after a few years, we moved up to Oklahoma and then of course came back here. And every so often I'll feel nostalgic and I'll just kind of drive down that road to see our first house. And you know what that first house looks like? It looks terrible. It looks terrible. 
Like, man, this is terrible, man. This is terrible. And I, and I keep thinking to myself, man, all the work I put into that hedge and they let it die, right? You know, and all the work with that gate, man, now it's just falling apart. You know, I just, man, all that work I put into it and I got it, man, it was looking good. And now they just let it fall apart. And it's a great reminder that it's not our home. Everything is fading and the things that really matter are things of eternal value. So if you're married, love, see the beauty as the Lord would have you to love and serve God in it. And if you are single, see it as a gift and serve God in it and set your eyes on the things that matter for eternity. Why don't you bow your heads with me for just a minute. What's the Lord saying to you this morning? What's he saying to you personally? Maybe there are things that, that need work on your marriage and you have to confess that you've been thinking about how much easier it would be to just get out of it than to work through it. Maybe there's not been that reciprocal honor in your home and God's convicting you that that needs to start with you. Maybe you're single and you've not been seeing your singleness as a gift from God to serve Him and to glorify Him, but you've been desperate for another person when God is just telling you to just rest and to use this season as a gift to serve Him fully. Whatever the circumstance the Lord found you in, Paul said, just settle in. See the beauty in it. And glorify God there. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ. Then that's where it starts. Seeing your need for the Lord Jesus. The gospel is super clear that God created you to know him and love him and serve him. But sin has caused us to lose our own way and separated from God, isolated from God, alone, desperate. But Jesus came to restore you back in a relationship with the Father. He came and he died on a cross and he rose again from the dead so you could be made new again. So you could find the beauty of life in serving and knowing and following Jesus. Maybe today you've never given your life to Christ and I want to give you an opportunity right now to do that with your heads bowed, nobody looking around. If you're here and you say, Craig, I don't know that I've truly given my life to Christ. Maybe that's why I'm so unhappy. Maybe that's why I'm so desperate in my situation. I just have never come to faith in Jesus. He's never really changed my life. But today, the Spirit of God is saying, today's your day. This is your time. Confess your sin. Turn to me. Call on my name. And I will hear. I will answer. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer of faith to do just that. But if God's working in your heart, just lift up your hand. Pastor, pray for me and I'll see your hand and I'll lead you in a prayer. I'm not going to call you out, but I'll know that God's moving in your heart. So right now, lift up your hand. Pastor, pray for me. I need Christ in my life. I want God to change me, renew me. All right, thank you. Thank you. I, I want to be made new again in Jesus. Lift up your hand right now. All right. Lift it up. Right now, Spirit of God moving in your heart. All right, then you just put your hand down now right where you are. Just pray with me. Dear Lord, I know I've sinned against you. 
I know I've gone my own way. I've tried to find happiness in life apart from you. But I know you are all I need. I believe you died on a cross for me. I believe you rose again from the dead. So I'm asking you now, please forgive me. Wash me clean. Make me new. I turn from my sin and I turn to you, Jesus. Thank you for loving me. And Lord, I just pray for all those in the room today, no matter what condition in life we find ourselves, married, single, Lord, help us see the beauty in it. Lord, help us glorify you in it. Because the times are short. Lord, we want to honor you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name.